This is CUNY TV, the City University of New York. City University Television presents The American Theatre Wing Seminars Working in the Theatre This seminar, Producing to the American Theatre Wing Seminars on Working in the Theatre. These are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, located on 42nd Street, the heart of Times Square, the heart of the theatre, the beat of the theatre, where Broadway, Off-Broadway, and Off-Off-Broadway all come together to present that wonderful magic of live professional theatre. And what is very good goes out across the country and from the country, from the regional theaters, come their very best to New York. The American Theater Wing is well known for its Tony Awards, and it's the most coveted and prestigious award. Uh, it's named in honor of a woman named Antoinette Perry, who is an actress, a producer, and believed strongly in training for the theater. And so the award is given not for uh, the best reviews, the longest line at the box office, its most smash hit, but because one has achieved excellence in the craft of theater, and it continues to this day, some 50 years later. We at the American Theater Wing continue doing what we did 50 years ago, servicing the community through the theater. We send shows and entertainment to hospitals, nursing homes, and AIDS centers, so that for a brief moment, people who can't come to the theater and are in pain get a little bit of the magic of theater. We have a Saturday Theater for Children program, which is exactly what it is on Saturday mornings. Thousands of children have lined up through the years to see a live show. And our introduction to Broadway program is a very exciting one. It's done in cooperation with the American Theatre Wing, the producers, and the Board of Education of New York City. And when we started it briefly, with a very, very small amount to be paid by the student, but the student had to buy a ticket, the teachers would announce the shows, and immediately their hands shot up and they bought tickets. And uh, that first season, I think over a thousand children came to the Broadway theater. And this was done through the goodwill of the American Theater Wing and the generosity of the Broadway producers. In its third season, over 31,000 children have seen Broadway shows, which means that not only is there role modeling there and education, but there's also future Broadway audiences, which is what we need. And these seminars have grown out of our school, 
and they had become a very important part of the education of working in the theater, not only for the students, but for the professionals and for the audience as well. I'm Isabel Stevenson, and I'm going to turn this over immediately to our co-moderators, George White, who is president of the O'Neill Center in Waterford, Connecticut, and is also a teacher and a director at Yale, Brendan Gill, who is an author and a board member of the American Theatre Wing, a critic and a lover of theatre, and they, in turn, will introduce this very distinguished and wonderful panel that we have today. I know that you will enjoy it, as I will. Thank you, Isabel. I will um, presume to start for, uh, next to my, uh, my esteemed colleague. And on my far left, which is not a political statement, I don't believe, um, is uh, Barbara Gelb, who uh, not only is a playwright in her own right, but um, with her husband, Arthur, wrote the landmark biography, O'Neill, which I just learned is going to be reissued by Applause Book, and I'm delighted to know that. Welcome. Next to her is Todd Hames, who is the uh, president of the Alliance of, of Resident Theaters, uh, also teaches at the Yale School of Drama, wherever that is. Uh, and most importantly uh, for the occasion uh, uh, today is the uh, artistic director of the Roundabout Theater. Welcome. <laughs> On Todd's right is uh, Mark B. Weiss, who is... Uh, Lighting, uh, Anna Christie, it's his second uh, production of O'Neill, but his 250th production uh, as a lighting designer. Welcome, Mark. <laughs> and to my immediate left is Anne Mera, who uh, is uh, with her uh, esteemed husband, Jerry Stiller, have done, uh, as it says in the biography, almost every television show, and she, in her own right, uh, she plays Marthy Owen in, in uh, Anna Christie and, and is the recipient of four Emmy nominations. And nice to have you. <laughs> On my far right, next to Isabel, is an actor with the most vehement, the most violent name in American theater, <laughs> Rip Torn, uh, wearing, I'm glad to say today, a jacket that has zippers. Untorn. His credits are Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, Secret Bird of Youth, on and on, Glass Menagerie. He's also uh, an eminent uh, director in film and television as well. And uh, next to Rip is John Lee Beatty, who uh, is known with his sets everywhere, many of them uh, so enviably attractive, not necessarily in the case of Anna Christie, uh, that people want to buy them right off the stage. <laughs> there's, a, there's a very charming set in the Sisters Rosenzweig and a wonderful Fire Island beach house in, in uh, Lips Together, uh, Teeth Apart, uh, that everybody really and truly must have asked, please, can we not buy this right then and there? And then on my immediate right, Natasha Richardson making her Broadway debut in the title role of Anna Christie, uh, she has previously appeared in the uh, Tugo in Anna Christie in London at the Young Vic and also in High Society there. And so here we are. 
George, because I'm in mortal terror of saying Agatha Christie instead of Anna Christie. I want you to begin this. <laughs> All right. Uh, it, the, um, I'd like to, if I may, start by asking uh, Barbara Gelb to give us a little bit of the historic perspective of, uh, on this production, uh, actually on this play, uh, because, which will give us a historic uh, perspective on the production. Um, as the, probably the foremost living O'Neill expert, uh, and someone who has really lived with this gentleman um, even longer than I have. Um, if you could tell us a little bit, again, to set it for us, about the history of, of, of the original play and how it evolved, and it's a little bit about it. Very briefly, it, um, uh, Anna Christie was O'Neill's third Broadway production, and it came very shortly after his first, which was Beyond the Horizon in 1920. He had only been writing uh, for about five or six years. He started writing in 1915, and he had written uh, quite a few one-act plays, which were produced by the Provincetown Players down in Greenwich Village. And um, critics, Broadway critics, had been going to see him, see his things. They had heard that um, he was getting to be quite good and that he had a pretty good reputation. And they um, almost unanimously uh, raved about Beyond the Horizon, which was the first Native American tragedy to be seen on Broadway. And it was uh, really a revolutionary sort of production. Um, the next uh, thing that was done of his on Broadway was a forgettable play called Gold, which we don't really need to go into. <laughs> and uh, Anna Christie evolved through several versions. He um, had the idea of writing about a uh, barge captain and his daughter, but she was not in the beginning a prostitute. She was um, just a girl that he had neglected and let grow up uh, on a farm and not paid attention to. And this man was obsessed by um, the sea, and his main, uh, the main conflict was that he was terrified that she would marry a sailor. Um, the, uh, <clears throat> the first three versions of the play, if I remember, were one was called Tide, one was called The Old Devil, one was called Chris Christofferson, which actually um, was produced in Atlantic City very briefly, and it was not a success, and he then went back to the drawing board and finally wrote um, Anna Christie. Um, what else can I tell you? He was, he was 32 at the time, and he had won a Pulitzer Prize for Beyond the Horizon, which was uh, the prize had only been established uh, four years earlier, and he had no idea what it was when he got it. He just thought that um, he was going to have to make a speech, which he hated to do. And uh, finally, when he found out that money came with it, he, <laughs> he was just thrilled to death about that. <laughs> and he won another Pulitzer for Anna Christie. I think there were seven given up to that point, and he won two of them. A um, couple of years, they didn't give one at all to, to a play. Is that enough background well, to start with? Well, it was very controversial, the, wasn't it? I believe it was, oh, the, uh, it was the, banned uh, in Boston. When it was, that. yes. When, when it uh, opened, of course, it was very controversial. It was about a prostitute who did not have to pay a price for her life of sin, which was unheard of in the 1920s. Um, it was banned in Boston, probably. I forgot that <laughs> most of his plays were sooner or later. By the time it was on, he was enormously prolific, and he always had new ideas, and he was always on to a new project before the old project was finished. And he was already writing The Hairy Ape when Anna Christie was produced. Um, Thank you. That's enough to start with, I think. 
That was, yeah. It's an interesting thing to me that, that, to watch how it developed through those things, and that in the one that failed at Atlantic City uh, in the cast was Lynn Fontaine, because the young character at, at, at that time was quite a ladylike person who had been left yes. in England right. rather than in, right. in Minnesota, and, and uh, she had brought herself up to be quite a prim and proper person, and she speaks in the play in, in a prim and proper fashion, utterly unlike what O'Neill was able to transform it into very, very quickly when he made his decision about what she right. was going to be like. Right. But it was a, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fascinating thing just to read the two versions to see how he, how he enriched it and quadrupled its strength by, right. by, by that means. And it would give you such a start to think of uh, Lynn Fontaine first and now we have Natasha here doing that. Well, in between was Pauline Lord, who Pauline was Lord the original, and, and who did not at all uh, match the description that O'Neill had written of Anna Christie, who was a kind of a, a Viking daughter, I think he says she is, very tall and um, very um, bosomy and well-developed. And Pauline Lord, <laughs> <laughs> Pauline Lord was, was very small and petite and, and kind of fragile-looking, but um, evidently she gave a wonderful performance. and. Um, one of the really hard things in the play, of course, is to, to be this uh, old man, uh, Christopherson, who is uh, both, uh, he's drunken and tender-hearted and uh, inarticulate uh, and obsessed. And uh, Rip has to be all those things and still be speaking in, in a very difficult uh, Swedish patois. Now, you have a little Swedish background in your own family, but I doubt if that could have really helped you. Yeah, I, I I heard those kind of jokes, you know, throw the horse over the fence some hay, and and uh, which was a big joke in my day. <laughs> so we got some of those in this. I've got one is the hardest one is it says, I wonder if I should get somebody else to read this for me. By Yingo, I got get Marthy Shore off barge before Anna come. Anna raise hell as you find that out. Marthy raised hell too for go by golly. And the only way I've I try to break it up and I say I gotta get I try to help it with a little gesture there. I gotta get Marthy off bar uh, what is it? I gotta get Marthy Shore off bars before I Oh I some some nights I do better than others. <laughs> I'd like, if I may, uh, this was, uh, uh, it's, it intrigues me. Uh, I'd like to uh, go to Todd on this one. Uh, of all of the O'Neills uh, that you might have chosen, uh, what was your inspiration to go this way? Because I think it's an inspired choice, and we'll get to the mixture of acting styles and things. But why Anna Christie? It, it was done not that well, I guess, maybe about 10 years ago with uh, uh, 15, maybe? So 15 or 16 yeah. years ago. Yeah. You know, uh, and, uh, but why? Well, uh, boy, I wish I could take more credit um, for the inspired oh, choice. Oh, go ahead. Well, no, I, it, it actually the inspired choice comes down to the word yes, but I'll, I'll get to the yes in a second. We, you know, one of the things we look for when we do a play, because we do primarily revivals, um, is a reason to do it. And there are a whole variety of reasons to do plays, some of them which may be, for example, that, that a whole generation hasn't seen a play could be rediscovered, which is not really the case in terms of, literal case in terms of Anna Christie, as you mentioned. Um, Another reason to do a revival of a play is because you have a, a, an actor or a director who you think can bring something truly special to it. And this falls more in the latter category. So the, the evolution of this production was 
uh, I was sitting in my office one day, and the phone rang, and they said, Sam Cohn is on the phone, which in itself is an experience. Um, <laughs> and yes. So I took the call, and he said, would you be interested in doing Anna Christie with Natasha Richardson? And I said, yes. <laughs> because um, because I, I guess one of the things we all do, whether we're involved actively in the theater or as theater goers or whatever, is um, in our experience, we look around in the movies and theater and television and all the different media about the people that we'd love to see uh, do certain things. And particularly for me as a producer, I think about the people I'd love to work with. And Natasha is someone whose work I've just admired ex so much in the, over the years, <laughs> she's still very young, um, <laughs> that the minute, um, the minute Sam said that, I was interested. So Natasha came and, and we had lunch. Um, and, and the thing that clinched it for me, because there was never any doubt in my mind um, that she would be a spectacular Anna, the thing that, that clinched it for me um, at that lunch um, was that very often, um, and from time to time, let's say, you're approached by actors who want to do a play and you get the feeling, and it may in fact be unconscious rather than conscious, that perhaps they want to surround themselves with people who are going to make them look good. Mm -hmm. um, and perhaps not give the play its best shot. Uh, the first thing that Natasha said to me was, my interest in doing this play and this production, besides obviously her interest in the role and all that, was to get three other actors who are, and I think the word she used was, formidable actors to, who are you know, equally as strong, if not stronger than I am, to give this play the balance. And you can really see the fight going on between these two men and myself. And frankly, a lot of people wouldn't say that. And that was her feeling from the beginning. Um, and that just cinched it for me. And, and as things worked out, which they don't always do, um, we got <laughs> Liam Neeson to play Matt Burke, an extraordinary, extraordinary actor. We got Rip Torn to play Chris. We got Anne Muir, an incredibly distinguished actress, to play a relatively small but key role in this play. Um, and, and so Natasha's really vision of what she wanted to see this production be from an acting standpoint was really what was realized. And then David Laveau, our director, John, also. Can I interrupt for a minute? Mm -hmm. When was that legend? How long ago was that? Oh, I guess it's about, I don't know, nine months ago? Or a year. Or a year. Yeah. How long? A, a year. So it was just a year to assemble all yes. the people and get to it. Is you plead guilty to this percipience? Well, yeah, I plead guilty <laughs> to, to, to bringing the, the play to Todd. And, and I just, as I said to him the other day, I will just be forever grateful to him for, for taking the chance on this. And, and I think that one of the things that was, was, was important to me was that I just knew that you had to have actors who are not afraid of the truth, who are not afraid of the emotional commitment to this material. Because for me, it become, only becomes melodrama when it's not really felt, when you don't feel all that pain and the anger and the despair and the love and all those things. So I knew it was key that we had to have a cast that, that was able to do that. And also that how David Laveau, our director, saw it, and <coughs> myself and I think all of us involved, is that we wanted we wanted to, to bring, we wanted to shake the dust off it, if you like. We wanted to bring it to life, and, and, and we all feel that it has a lot of um, contemporary resonance. It's very much of its time, but a lot of it is about, about now, too, and, and sort of feelings between fathers and daughters and men and women that, that, um, that you know, go through the centuries that are elemental. So I think that's what we were trying to do. Was it a success in London, a big success? I was in a totally different production in mm -hmm. London mm -hmm. um, that was, it was, was very successful, but um, 
not anything like as successful as this. What made uh, it totally different? What do you say? It, totally it was a combination of uh, different director, different actors, and I wasn't the same two, three years ago as, as I am now. Mm -hmm. Different designer. I mean, it was just. It was. I, it was very good. It went. It went to like eighty, and I eighty percent. And I knew if if you had the right combination of people, we could try and take the roof off the theatre, which I think on some nights we we get close to. So, so that's. And yeah. to pick up on that, you you yeah. do indeed take the roof off the theatre, and, and that's <laughs> that's one of the uh, <laughs> and, and department. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Very dangerous on Times Square. There is, uh, and it and it's an intriguing uh, mix. And I wanted to ask Anne this, um, you know, because you have certainly been involved in so many different kinds of production. The thing that's interesting is the stylistic difference between all of you, you know, and yet it all works very well. Would you? talk a little bit about that how I mean obviously uh, the director makes that mesh but uh, have you ever been through a, a kind of thing with this kind of wonderful mixture of, of styles of actings and approaches or did you find the approach uh, from an acting point of view the the same from all of you I tell you George I honest to God don't uh, uh, think of style uh, I, I um I don't think of any different styles of acting, uh, but of course I'm in the play and I'm not seeing it. I, uh, I, I can't address myself to that. I just, uh, I feel very close to the people I work with. I'm sorry the big love scene between Liam and me was cut. Passionate <laughs> 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 dare. <laughs> this is a joke, folks, if you haven't read the play. I'm in for the first ten minutes and that's it. She says in the play, she tells me that she's leaving me that's and right. she's got another guy or a set of guys waiting for her. They're waiting. <laughs> They're waiting. Oh, <laughs> but I, um, I'm still waiting for your rip. <laughs> I, I really don't know I, uh, about uh, style. Is is uh, what is uh, style? Is the way you do something? Well, uh, let's let's put it. I mean, here here you have uh, someone who was brought up uh, one in in Ireland, one in England, two in America. Right. Uh, which obviously the training, if you start from from zero oh. on oh. through, and yet it all seems to come together in a very kind of harmonious way, which is not necessarily always true. That's really where I'm coming from. A I don't bit. feel any difference between we? where we come from at all. Uh, I just, I personally don't. I just. I think that the styles are the styles of the character yeah. and mm -hmm. come out yeah. of the character. I'm lucky uh, here after many years uh, and movies and theater to be an overnight be an overnight success <laughs> uh, also in the Larry uh, Sanders show and I don't know if anybody here has seen that thing uh, the Gary Shandman show but that character I play in that is totally completely different you wouldn't think of these guys could even say hello to each other so I think that that the training that we've had even though we've we've come from different areas has has been uh, Parallel. My, my first mentor when, was uh, B. Iden Payne, who was the founding director of, of Stratford uh, in England, not up on the banks up in Connecticut or, or in, in Canada. He also was a director at the Abbey. So I was very much uh, influenced by him and studied uh, not only uh, 
and played five Shakespearean uh, productions with him, including two leads of the so-called Scottish play and then in, in Cymbeline and others. Uh, but so I, I grew up with, an, and I loved poetry, so I, I spent many years where I gave poetry reading. So I, I had that, what we call English training, which was on the word and the line, and then also I was lucky enough to study with uh, Sidney Lamette's father, Baruch Lamette, and uh, study with Sanford Meisner, with, with Martha Graham, with, uh, at the Actors Studio with Lee Strasberg, with many, many teachers. And so we, we feel that all good actors keep striving to find the character and serve the playwright. Mm -hmm. uh, Natasha at Robert Cray's goes, every night she'll see me in my dressing room and she says, <laughs> be careful when you're going for your accuracy that you don't, always, don't play the commas and the periods. Well, sometimes <laughs> I do and sometimes I don't. But anyway, what I'm saying is, though it appears that we have greatly diverse experiences, all good actors strive yeah. for the same thing, to convey the emotion of the character, but what good does it do if you ill-serve the playwright? Mm -hmm. So, uh, knowing that I've got an extra battle with uh, playing a part that has a, a, a dialect in it, I, I, I do have to work on my voice, do my exercises, do all those things that nobody would think I do any of that kind of stuff. You know? <laughs> Before we get to, to John and Mark, who bring the whole thing alive, because we're on this subject, and you've, you've done comedy mostly. And to get to what Rip is saying, where do you, where do you come from in order to say from Brooklyn. comedy and this? <laughs> I knew I was saying that. Cheap shot, Isabel, sorry. To this. What do you draw upon? Rip said he's, he's had all of this experience and this wonderful training in classics as well as, as uh, contemporary theater. I, I, I think I draw on the same things for, uh, for my uh, part in Anna Christie as I do when I uh, work with my husband or if I was in a sitcom or if I was doing anything. I think it's the same source. We each have, we're each, uh, we're each this, you know, I, I draw on myself mm -hmm. and stuff that this self of mine has absorbed through the considerable amount of years I've been on the planet. And I, I was saying to Tasha in the ladies' room, we were having a cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> we're bad, but you know. I said, it seems funny that I have found, I don't know if this is true for you, Rip, but when I'm, and I haven't been doing a whole lot of plays in a row. The last play I was in was about four years ago. But uh, that there's something in the play that I discover about myself that mirrors my life mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. I don't, hope I don't mean that in a narcissistic yeah, yeah. sense yeah. but uh, the discoveries I make about myself are, uh, are, are really of interest only to myself but I, I think are helpful to what I'm doing in the play if that makes any sense. Makes a lot. Mm -hmm. And I think I mean I think you would all probably the actors agree that uh, and um, Barbara certainly knows that O'Neill himself having been the child of an actor somehow writes very specially for actors is something that, that gets grabs you inside uh, almost as much as any other playwright that yeah. uh, language or all those other things aside that's something that goes right to the core of an actor 
I think coming out of that tradition of having a father yeah, who was an actor, growing up in the every theater. Every actor I've ever talked to who has been in an O'Neill play says that they discover things about themselves through the part. And but what's very interesting, what you said, Natasha, about making this um, that you felt that this is a play, um, a timely play, because ordinarily this is a play that everyone considers a kind of rusty period piece that should be retired permanently. And it's true that you have made it timely. I'm not quite sure what the <laughs> magic was that made you able to do that. But um, it, you, you hear, um, if you look at this as part of, uh, of O'Neill's journey to Long Day's journey into night, ultimately, which I think everyone now does when they do an earlier O'Neill play, since that is the ultimate play, you see the beginnings of his struggling to write that play eventually with little, little things like just a very obvious thing like the setting of Johnny the Priest, which later showed up in Iceman Cometh. But in Long Day's Journey, the two men in um, Anna's life go off, they leave her and they go off to get drunk, which is echoed in Long Day's Journey by Ella, uh, Mary Tyrone's um, husband and two sons who go off, you know, all right, go ahead, leave me, go and get drunk, you know, leave me alone. It's, it's, um, kind of following through and if you if you see Anna Christie in terms of the later plays you do feel a sense of uh, vitality and timeliness in it. Yeah. I, I, yeah I think as if you think that I don't think that Anna is is any different from um, the thousands of girls on on the streets of New York who have uh, who have no family or have run away from home uh, maybe had abuse when they were kids and have have nothing no money and just maybe one chance and they come to a big city looking for it and, and you, you meet them every day not far from our theatre mm -hmm. and I think that particularly kind of in the age of AIDS that when you think about Matt Burke's reaction when he finds out that this girl is not this pure decent young virgin but in fact has been on the streets and some people would say that his reaction to, to her which is to say get away from me I hate you how can you do this to me is is old-fashioned I I don't see it as old-fashioned I mean he is Irish Catholic there's all that in there but I just don't know I can't think of any man the best kind of men that I know that wouldn't totally freak if they found out that um, a woman they were about to marry had in fact been um, a prostitute on the streets. Very true. What did the critics think when they, in the, in the original production that won the, no, uh, the uh, Pulitzer Prize? Was it largely favorable? Yes, it was largely favorable. It, they, were, they were a little shocked. Of course, they were too sophisticated to show that they were shocked. <laughs> Alexander Wolcott couldn't say he was shocked, neither could Hayward Broom. <laughs> but um, it was, it, it just uh, was a very unconventional and um, unusual sort of thing. I don't know whether this has anything to do with it, but in the production that was done in Berlin shortly after New York, Anna committed suicide. I think that... Uh, what? <laughs> yeah. The actress? Or, or no, no. The, the <laughs> she, was directed, <laughs> she was directed and produced to commit suicide. That's the way they ended the play. Huh. I guess they felt that, that she had to die. The wages of sin. Absolutely. Well, in the 18th uh -oh. century, of course, King Lear had a happy ending. People have had a tendency to tamper with praise for, for a long time That's now. Right. In, in, in Russia, uh, Blanche uh, Dubois comes back and, and it goes <laughs> off. <laughs> That's all right. George, I want to get to Mark, George. Yes. 
I like to get to Mark and John because yeah. without the two of them, shy. this whole production wouldn't be here. Right. Uh, yeah, John, I, I'd like to, if I may, ask a little bit about uh, so many people, so many designers, and I would say this for Mark too, uh, find, again, uh, the excitement of, of uh, designing an O'Neill play is the, it gives you such a chance to design out of character. Uh, from character rather than just saying, let's say, what did a barge or what did uh, uh, Provincetown uh, and New York Harbor barges and people look like then. Uh, what was your approach, both of your approach? Because lighting is also a very key part of this, too. And I, uh, that's did you work issue. together right from the very yeah. beginning? Not from the very beginning, so why don't you start? Uh, <laughs> I should say Mark and I have worked together before, so of course we I'm thinking of him in the beginning. Um, <laughs> There was quite a bit of cultural clash, actually. David Laveau and I are not from the same country. Okay, we'll so, see there. Uh, <laughs> in more ways than one. And uh, <laughs> uh, I enjoyed working with him. There's no problem. But, you know, he's, uh, we came from two totally different traditions in terms of approaching O'Neill. Uh, to David, he is an American playwright. And to me, he's a playwright. And uh, mm -hmm. I see Robert, I think Robert Edmund Jones and the American tradition of producing O'Neill and I went through the library and saw, of course, I was thinking of the Garbo movie and watched that, which horrified David, and um, <laughs> finally watched it together and we discussed what we hated about it, and uh, especially casting, actually getting back to the acting, we talked a lot about the casting and I was so thrilled that Rip was going to do it because I felt that we were going to get away from having a character man sort of phone in the father's role instead of having him be a possible contender in terms of the battle amongst these mm -hmm. people. Um, so David and I had a lot to discuss, and even to the fact that the Roundabout Theatre is, like most American theatres, very wide with a very wide audience. British theatres are narrow with a narrow audience, and a director's vision in English terms to me is quite different in terms of the space, because David thinks this way, and I, as an American, tend to think wide open spaces, and uh, there's a lot to discuss in that respect. Basically, David made me give up all my former illusions of what Anna Christie was. <laughs> I went to, there were some horrible productions, or they may not have been horrible in their day, but there's this, I urge you to go to the Lincoln Center and see the picture of Celeste Holm as Anna Christie with a little trench coat and a little beret pulled <laughs> jauntily over one eye, smoking a cigarette. And They've written on the cheesecloth behind her backwards the bar, and there's like, <laughs> <laughs> there's, it's like it looks like the Carol Burnett show. <laughs> I think the thing that he said, you know, we don't always talk about scenery, but uh, he had a vision of Anna as. Um, I finally said, you're describing the Virgin of Guadalupe. Uh, to <laughs> she was a, she was an idea that floated in space rather than uh, we were stumbling over the exposition and the logic of everything. But to him, uh, and I think this was his great gift in terms of the play, was that uh, the Anna is a, uh, an idea bigger than just uh, logical life. Anna is an idea that has to happen. And all of the people in the play are emblematic and, and uh, I don't know, er people, or whatever you call them. And uh, he wanted to set them off that way and not have us, uh, uh, God bless him, he didn't even know what I was typecast for in the theater. So uh, he, didn't, he didn't even want molding around the doors or sofas <laughs> or anything. And uh, he just wanted the, us to follow the characters in a, in a sort of a straight through line and not worry so much about the logic. 
I know the set doesn't look like a barge especially, and I, I know the bar doesn't look like a bar especially, and the last scene in the barge doesn't really look like a barge either. That wasn't what David was after. But, but it's sorry like to interrupt you, everybody says that, um, you know, it's extraordinary you feel you're on that barge. Sure, do. And we feel we're on a barge yeah. when we're on it, and that's how brilliant you've been, oh, that you've uh, elevated it out of the domestic, I think, and... and well, so it is supposed to be elevated out of the domestic, right. Yeah. Yes. Feels like a bar to me. It has a family entrance. It seems like a very authentic bar with that family entrance. I have to tell you that I think the actors would tell you too that the bar set is not the set that we went on stage with. But David's a very intense guy who smokes a lot of cigarettes as well. Everybody here yeah. smokes cigarettes. Uh, we changed the set once. <laughs> once we got on stage, we changed the set. I couldn't believe these actors would do it, but he changed all of the blocking. They all changed the blocking, but we got on stage for the first time in the bar and nothing worked. The sight lines of the theater didn't work, the nothing. All their hard work in the rehearsal hall, nothing worked. And uh, everybody together restaged the entire scene with a different setting, which... Um, <laughs> That was the first time I'd ever done that on stage. <laughs> 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 it was pretty, I was amazed how well it That's worked out. Right. That's in, in the rave review by John Lahr in the New Yorker, Family yeah. Weekly, uh, <laughs> <laughs> in the, the one criticism he had was of that carpet and the... Uh, you didn't like the set at all. I didn't. And, uh, um, but that was the real, that, that was his uh, review. The carpet? The You're carpet right. was the Why? review. Why? I don't, I don't remember. He had been he on the barge. He said he'd been a naval seaman or he'd yeah. been a common seaman. I think seaman. that was actually, and I said that to David too. Bar, and David <laughs> loved that carpet. I wanted to bring in an American hooked rug and then a jute rug. And David, we looked at a Persian rug and that's what David thought was he right. But that's in, in reading, uh, I live up in your area up in Connecticut and reading the history <laughs> of all those, uh, the furnishings and of, of Dutch uh, sea captains and everything. They said all the sailors brought uh, objects from China, yes. rugs from Persia, and they might not have anything else, but they, and, 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 and the description of it is that it's a very neat, it isn't a kind of a gungy kind of barge. He's no. kept it Shall I look it up? Let's discuss that. I'll look it up for you. I won't do it right. You won't wait for me, but I'll look it back. Yes, but the logic that's important. What's important is David said that this must be a passionate rug. Yeah. That's tough to find. Passionate rugs are hard to find. That's a passionate rug. And even passionate Persians. Uh, Mark, uh, the lighting is, I mean, it is critical here, and it is, in any way, but the nice thing is that, that it is not obviously conscious, but it is there, and it is such a critical part of complementing, obviously, uh, John's set, but I mean, the whole thing is so important. Uh, how did you approach that? Well, I came into the project just as John was returning from his meetings with David in London. <laughs> So I came in a little, little late. Um, but I had the advantage of having done a number of plays with John before and also having done Moon for the Misbegotten, another O'Neill play, with David. Uh -huh. So that gave me sure. a clue. Coming Over here or here? Here, mm -hmm. at the court. And uh, Fortunately, so we had, David and I had decided that Mark was going to do all the work on the fog and that the, <laughs> the light was the third char character in the play. So. I could just sort of bow and hand it to him and he'd have to. Well, it is. I mean, that's what's it, why, I, I, you know, it's so important. I'm so glad that you're here because it is another character yeah. in the play. You, you are creating yeah. a well, character. O'Neill, unlike many authors, takes note of light. And uh, so that was a good starting point. But uh, once uh, John explained to me where he and David had gotten to, uh, I 
and having worked with David before, I knew immediately which direction we were going in. But my, my real uh, kickoff was the first reading of the, of the play with the actors. Uh, and Why? Because I'd okay. been, I'd been trying to decide how I was going to approach this. And John said had, in each scene, a specific s strong source of light. But that in itself doesn't particularly mean anything. And it was in the first reading when I remember Anne joking at the, at the reading saying, all these people are sitting there looking at us so intently because all the designers are lined up watching the reading. Uh, but as I watched the reading, I saw such, I don't know how to describe it, other than such clarity and focus and concentration in each of the actors, even at the very first reading, and a sort of zeroing in on these characters that it became apparent to me right then that the lighting had to be something which would allow us 50 feet away at the back of the house to see all of that that I was seeing sitting 10 feet from the reading table. And so I then spoke with David and we decided um, that we would, by taking each of the strong sources of light in each scene, the light through the bar door, light through the fog or through the cabin door, uh, and by making those very intense, I could then keep the lighting level very flat and bright on the actors so that we could see all the detail without it appearing to be bright. Mm. So that uh, there's actually probably a, a much higher lighting level in, in even the darker scenes on the barge, for example, than you would normally have in a straight play. Mm. And, and that's true in the bar scene yeah, too at the yeah, very in beginning. the bar scene as well. Mm -hmm. But it seems dingy at the bar or in yeah. the corners of the barge or anything because in the bar in the bar that lights through the door is much, much brighter than you would normally have coming through a window or a doorway in a, in a typical set. That's so I really took my cue again from that clarity in, of the actors. Can you talk about the rehearsal period? How, how did that work? How did it get together? When did you first meet with each other? Anne, why don't you take that? Well, you know, start with me. Sure. Oh. <laughs> well, first of all, I, uh, uh, I, uh, I think I am probably the only one of the four of uh, Natasha and Liam and Rip. I auditioned for the part, and uh, I almost felt I might be blowing this because I was away. I was up in Nantucket. And for, for personal, things were falling apart in the house. I, I could not leave Nantucket when Pat McCorkle, the casting agent, wanted me to come in. And she uh, then showed David Laveau a little film I had done, a black and white 26-minute film made by a guy named Eric Mendelssohn, uh, which was not a comedy. It was kind of, anyway, I was very happy to have been in this little film. He liked the film, David Laveau and said, when I come back from London, would I be able to come in? And I talked with him, I said, yeah, I'll be there, sure, because at that date I was available. And I went and I auditioned for him, and I, I left and said, and then he told me before I g got to the elevator that they would like me in the play. I said, sounds good to me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I probably made that joke uh, about whatever, about people watching us, as actors do out of fear, I, I, don't, I can't speak for other actors, but there's great fear of being judged during a first reading, and you just don't... So I would say something smart-ass, you know, mm -hmm. but it would 
really be to well, What was thrilling to me was I that I saw everyone at the table just jump in with both feet, and that was an impetus for us on the technical side to you wanna, jump in also. You really want to do, you don't want people to feel they made a mistake in hiring you. <laughs> and the rehearsal period and answer to your question, I found very stimulating. Great. Tasha made us all feel at home right away. Right away she says, call me Tasha. Natasha, would you talk about a little bit about what happened during rehearsals and how it developed? And um, sh I'll try. Um, it's so weird talking about rehearsals because it's a, it's, it's just so far an evolving, uh, organic, day-to-day mm -hmm. -day process. It w we rehearsed for four weeks, and I think that we w we've just kept. We were all working in the same direction, as Rip said. We 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 all have whatever backgrounds or whatever. We all are working towards the center of the play, of telling this story and the, the real emotional truth of all these characters, and that's what we were all had in common and were working towards. I think that our tendency sometimes, I think David kept on saying to us, um, don't, don't, don't bring the plane down. You know, just let, you know, trust O'Neill and, and it'll go, and it'll go up, because your tendency is to try and make things sort of very naturalistic and, and very, real and maybe maybe this is a bit too big and he'd say no 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 just explore and trust O'Neill and, and he, he will the plane will will take up off and and you realize that by doing that by not being slow with it by coming in bang as he would keep on telling us to do come in bang on the end of a line and you suddenly find it, it coming to life in this very vital way and it's interesting to me hearing about the history of of the play that the, one of the original productions with Pauline Lord, I think, ran at about three hours and 15 minutes. And ours runs at about two hours, not including intermission, and two mm -hmm. hours, 15 with intermission. So it's a, I guess there was maybe a different way of playing O'Neill at that time, of really sitting back on it. And I just think it, it, we found it came, came to life when you, when, you, when you go for it and are quick with it and, and trust, trust the right. in your opening scene, and yep. it comes right up with that. No. Just a there a snip. At the beginning. Yeah. Few sentences. At the beginning of the bar. But no, we were afraid. You know, there, I think they cut the repeated, the classic. Uh, doesn't O'Neill usually repeat the exposition like playwrights used to? I, and they cut the he re tends repetition. To, uh, yeah. yeah. Well, they I mean, I, I frankly am of the school that thinks he can be cut occasionally. Yeah, yeah I, I, too, I, yeah. I agree. Well, I think David was also concerned that getting the audience off to on uh, just the starting moments mm -hmm. of the play to have them go through a long uh, uh, an exposition scene. I think he wanted the audience to know that this was going to be this rather well, than. Also, I think audiences are more sophisticated, and they've seen so many movies which are quick cuts and back and forth. They pick also up quicker. Also, two more actors, which is something not to be in the original production. There were a couple of more characters came in to have drinks. Two. Oh, That's right. Long shots. And then the who's going to hire two actors for that yeah. two minutes? <laughs> They're not going to do that anymore. But now we were praising <laughs> Rip for his wonderful uh, <coughs> accent, but we have we to go. praise you for your American <laughs> accent. <laughs> Her American yeah. Minnesota it, accent. Yeah, American <laughs> Minnesota, which is not easy. Uh, but but uh, the audience is, I think, very impressed with that. Yeah. How did you learn that American accent? Well, um, I, I worked on it being specifically Minnesota because that's where she's from, and it didn't make any sense to me that she's lived in this country since she was five years old. First thing she says to her father is, what's that Swedish? I don't know. And yeah. She doesn't know, she doesn't know Swedish. Why would she have a Swedish accent? Mm -hmm. 
Good so and and O'Neill doesn't write it with a Swedish accent. He a mysteriously little, puts in just, two just. two whys in the whole thing, yes, and not under when she's um, under emotional duress. So mm -hmm. I thought, no, I'm gonna. It's gonna be weird if she's she's from Minnesota and suddenly she says just and or mm -hmm. or Yale instead of jail. So it was very soon after Anna Christie that he started complaining about writing in dialect. He said, How am I going to write without writing in dialect? But have language that's native to the people I'm writing about, but no dialect. I think he thought himself that it was, he was locking himself into something that was difficult right. to sustain. Right. Let's see, we're talking about accents in the in, in right studio. <laughs> <laughs> Would you like to add to that? Accents. An accent, yes, in your role. Um, well, the, the part I play is, is, is uh, Irish, and uh, but I actually use an accent, but even though I'm from Bourne, County Antrim, which is the north of Ireland. Um, but O'Neill has written it as if he's kind of Connemara, west of, west of Ireland. Yeah. And there's some Dublin, <coughs> slang Dublin in there too, so it's... He takes you on a trip all around Ireland, certainly. <laughs> <laughs> all around yeah. John Millington Singh as yeah. well. Yeah, there's, there's bits of singing. But you must have played Singh. I, I I've did Riders to the Sea many years ago, and, yeah. and quite a bit of a Casey, too. Had you done O'Neill before? I hadn't. I, I, I did a play, I think it was one of his first comedies, called A Wilderness, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. many comedy. years ago. Only comedy. Yeah, it's only comedy. Yeah. The, the interesting <laughs> thing, this is uh, Liam Neeson, who, who plays Matt Burke, uh, uh, who just joined us, and welcome. Thank um, you, sir. Uh, I'm sorry. There's an interesting thing, and I, I would ask this of Anne, that, that some of the things that I've noticed over the years in O'Neill, it's wonderful, and actors like yourself, yourself, who is a consummate actor, can do this, and I saw this with Colleen Dewhurst, too, and, and uh, uh, is that often O'Neill makes his characters say one thing, and you know their line. Like, there are a lot of men out there, you know, and you know, and that's a very, that's a wonderful, sometimes, Actors can't do that. They say it and you believe it. But there's right. you've got to be able, how do, how do you do that? Is that something that comes from within? So that, so that we all take, on one sense, there's the surface, and then under, under, we're very clear that really you don't mean it, that, uh, that you're really just inside you're being torn up. I found David Laveau, the director, uh, very helpful to me because, uh, again, I was talking to Tasha before the show, uh, the seminar started. Uh, he said to me, which appeared to me personally, something very magical. He said, and you really don't have to do anything and be simple. And I really want you to realize that this little story, the part, the little story I have with Rip as Sir Chris Christopherson, is, uh, you know, you, it's, it's just where he's, he's leaving her. And so you, uh, you deal with it yourself. But you have to know how to be simple. Um, you have I, to, I, you I have hope to I don't always achieve it. I just think it's something, it, it, I guess sim simplicity for me would be in trusting and not being concerned uh, how I'm going over. I think it's terribly important for me personally at this stage of my life to really not worry or be concerned 
how I'm being perceived. Mm -hmm. Because I find it gets in the way, which is the only reason I'm not elitist. The only reason I personally, at least at this year of my life, cannot read reviews because I am affected by what people think, as, as we all are. And, and that's just for me. I can't. And, and if they, especially if they say something nice. <laughs> I mean, those nuns really screwed me up, you know? <laughs> what kind of a director was David? Was he a permissive director? Was he, did he say, this is what we want you to do? Or be, be simple, as he said to Anne, and then hope that Anne would know how to be simple? You're asking me that. I, I find him um, inspired, inspiring. Uh, the, the, the actual physical blocking of the play evolved. My, my text, I have not one note of move left of table, move right, sit down. It just, uh, it evolved is the right word. And uh, he, if he was giving you a note, it was something very specific to, not necessarily what you weren't doing, but just opening another little door for you, you know? And I kept talking about playing beats that sometimes in a scene or in a space of like three, four lines of dialogue, we think we're hitting all the beats that are in that, you know, what exactly these characters are saying over the space of four, four lines. But there'd always be two more beats that we were jumping over that we didn't know whether it was there. <clears throat> but David could see that, you know, and I, I, I you know, He's the best director I've, I've ever worked with on stage. Yeah, wonderful. Mm. Do you feel that way? I did. I thought he was... I, I, he, he's a sort of magical guy. He, he, he loves actors and, and he's... I don't know if you felt the same thing, Rip and I, but I didn't feel he constricted you in, in any way. No. You didn't, no. It, it was a wonderful thing that you didn't feel you must do this and perform my notes. He just let, let it grow from inside and then would encourage that, that growth, and then would tell you maybe when you'd go off in a wrong direction. Right. Or he'd say, well, okay, now you've got that, and now take it one stage further. So, um, I mean, also, we, we laughed a lot. I mean, we, we had a good time. <laughs> how <laughs> much did he bring out in you? How much it was different than when you started with this in the play? Would you say? From, from the first read-through? From, right, from, from as you were working. How much did you bring to it? How much did he bring out of you? I can't really answer that. It's, it feels so connected, all our work with each other and mm -hmm. with David, that I don't know what I did that I would have been able to do without Rip or, or, or Liam or David or Anne. I just feel we're all very connected and we've given to each other and hopefully given back. So. Um, I don't know how to answer that. One of the hard, hardest things in the world, of course, famously, is uh, for actors to have to listen as if they were really listening. And when Anna begins giving you both the bad news there, uh, and you're both having to listen an awful lot and take in an awful lot, and to be silent and sort of crouched there, taking in what amounts to your beating. And I think that is one of the most remarkable things in the play, that you're both able to Well, that's to nice, because I think that's what, I mean, there's lots of, you know, theories and maxims about what acting is. I, that's one of my top ones. I think acting is about listening. Mm -hmm. uh, and you do it very well. Yes. Well, or yeah. you have a chance to explode, too. George? Yeah. Sure. Yes. You directed Anna Christie in China. 
Yes. All right. Let's, we'll let's go anywhere for a job. I know. Absolutely. Quick change. <laughs> so will I. Well, just very quickly, uh, we. Uh, 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 when I was asked to direct an uh, O'Neill by uh, in China, uh, and it would be in Chinese, uh, and they, uh, this was 1984, and the question was what O'Neill to direct. And after seeing uh, my wife Betsy and I had been there and saw their their uh, productions, which always harked back to how bad things were before 1949, um, and I thought that if I directed uh, Long Day's Journey into Night. Uh, the Chinese wouldn't know what that would be, people from the moon. I mean, they, they, the whole idea of that would be so foreign to, in every sense. Um, so we deci I decided that perhaps Anna Christie would be the thing, because people indeed, before 1949, Chinese did sell their daughters into prostitution. Uh, they sold their children. This would speak to the Chinese. Uh, even today, prostitution is a capital offense in China. Um, so it, it's, a, it's a very, very strong thing. I went to my colleague at the Yale Drama School, Ming Cho Li, who was born in Shanghai, and said, how about uh, resetting this play in Shanghai, 1920s, 30s, whatever, uh, instead of Provincetown in New York? And he liked the idea. Uh, the Chinese tended to resist this initially because they wanted to do uh, the play as Swedish uh, Americans with blonde hair and the whole thing. And I thought, well, that's a little, no. Uh, I was against that. Um, and it was, uh, uh, we found that everything, uh, the it translated not only into Chinese, but culturally uh, quite well, only with two exceptions. Uh, one was the fact that there is no kissing on stage in China. So um, we had to settle for one of the mo most erotic moments in Chinese theater to this moment, and that is a big embrace on stage. And I found out the reason was that no uh, Chinese woman would kiss her uh, husband, let alone a boyfriend, in front of her father. That's one. That was just not done. It's too shocking, and it would be totally... The other thing, and this is the, really the last anecdote of that, um, was that I, I found that the actors would do anything I wanted them to do, which is very frustrating for a director. If you want them to walk <laughs> into a room, but nothing came back. It took a while to break that down. When it did, the lady who played Anna for me said, you know, my mother told me that in the, in the 20s and 30s, when, when children were sold, particularly women, um, they would uh, give, the family would give them an... Uh, uh, an identification bracelet with their family name on it. And so at the beginning, the one thing that we added to this was when uh, she meets her father in the bar for the first time, she goes up to him and says, Baba, which is father in Chinese, and pulls up her sleeve and shows the identification mm -hmm. bracelet to prove that that's his daughter. So that's, that it works in China. I'd like to hear more about that. At this point, we have to take a break. <laughs> Yeah. And everybody stands up and, and stretches and walks around the chair once and sits right down again. Please don't go away. And if you have any questions, I hope that you will think about them. And uh, there is a... I would uh, like to say something about the director. Well, you do as soon as we come okay. back. Okay. We'll be back right away. And so just stand up. I know where you're going. Right. I know where you're going. You're going to come right back? Yes. No. This is CUNY TV, Channel 75.
The fact that the American Theatre Wing seminars on working in the theatre, coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. This seminar is on Anna Christie, the Roundabout Theatre's wonderful, wonderful production. And talking about it here is the set designer and the lighting designer and the artistic director and the wonderful cast that makes it all come alive. We were talking about the director and, and how he brings out the very best in these people. And Barbara Gelb, who is a historian and, and talked about the beginning of Anna Christie and O'Neill and how that came about and the difference between then and now. So I'm going to let us continue and ask them to continue on directing, which is what we left off with just before we took a break. Rip, would you start this? Well, the word I thought about, well, let me picture this fellow for you. He's, he's so young, <laughs> so big grin, a lot of tousled hair. Tells you right away that he wasn't a very good actor. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> that's one of his charms, one of the most charming people, but, but like inspiring, you think, magical. He's a great sense of, of musicality. Mm. And uh, when we went off to have a little lager uh, down at the neighborhood bar, he would usually be playing the piano. The music that he has, the way he's picked it, uh, the whole thing has a great sense of uh, musicality and, and uh, the change in the bar, like which I guess kind of helped save, uh, help us make it open up the play. He said, I had this dream. <laughs> and uh, one of the, the great people I've ever worked with, and I just uh, think that uh, the work I've done, I give him so much credit for that, that he kept telling me, I thought a British director would say, oh dear boy, you're going too much, pull it in, you're, he just said, no, oh, dig in deeper, give us more. So, thanks, David. Ah, hey, nice to If I may, I'd like to uh, ask Liam a, a, a bit, since this is a seminar in working in the theater, uh, and there are a lot of American actors who spend their life uh, struggling to work in the theater because of the very nature of this, the structure of theater as it is in this country now. Can you tell us a little bit about, if you would, uh, what it is, uh, the training the, and how uh, working in the theater, what it's like in, in Ireland. I know there's, a, of course, a great tradition. I know you, I noticed you've worked in the Abbey, mm -hmm. but elsewhere in Ireland. A little bit of how you start and what the opportunities are and how you get started in Ireland with that wonderful, rich tradition, but it's a small country and I don't know how many theatres there are around Ireland. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. Well, um, where I'm from, and, and indeed I'm from the north of Ireland, as I said, but throughout Ireland there, there are always drama festivals going on. And I was brought up in that, uh, doing these festivals, and they usually occurred around Easter time and Christmas time too, actually. And uh, amateur, of course. And uh, each little town would hold a festival, like Larne one day, um, Carrickfergus, Bangor. And you'd, you'd, you'd travel there and did your play. It could be, a, say, a Tennessee Williams play, or it could be Shakespeare, or it could be Shauna Casey. And there'd be 10 or 12 other groups from different towns throughout would be presenting their plays too. And, and it was... Um, so uh, I did that for many years and, and then became professional and... and um, Did you study? Uh, I, I kind of studied and didn't study. I basically couldn't get a, uh, a grant, an award for... Uh, what is the kind of did and didn't? What yeah, and what is well, the grant? I'm trying to say... The training I did was basically doing plays in front, in front of audiences, which is the best training you can get, you know? 
I, I never worked with a, a coach or, but I, I read a lot and Stanislavski and went to little tutorials and you know worked and I did some stuff in Holland with improvisational groups and but you know looking back on it it was all the training was actually doing plays by master writers mm. and um, learning about the musicality of a play which you know to some ears here may sound strange you know musicality of a of a dramatic play but uh, you know rips absolutely right and uh, and learning about language you know and and the interpretation of it and interpreting a, char a character through that language and um, so when I say I didn't train I didn't officially I couldn't get an award to go to a drama school in England which was what I desperately wanted in fact I still have a letter from my uh, uh, local council saying they didn't recognize drama schools as further education institutions and that was the end of it <laughs> so I but anyway that was their decision but is it um, <coughs> then I went to a, a teacher training college for to become a drama teacher which I did not want to be but as as close as I it was as close as I could get to a, a pale imitation of an actor's training because we had very good tutors there and coaches and, and I, I just spent most of my time in, in the drama studio doing plays with like-minded people you know I field the, the actual course I actually feel the education part of it but uh, but it was just doing plays. It was just getting so the chance. Amateur, semi-professional, professional. Did he audition for the part? No, no, no. Uh, we, we, were very <laughs> <laughs> we were actually blessed, and that's what I was alluding to earlier, to get our, our, our first choice for every role. Uh, and in fact, even though um, this is a conversation I never really had with Anne, even though she told the story about her audition <laughs> earlier, what the real that's agenda... That's true. Well, it was an audition, but the real agenda there was that Pat McCorkle and the casting director uh, and I wanted Anne from the very beginning. David Laveau, just because he has not spent much time in this country, was not familiar with her work. So we had been talking, and Mira, and Mira, and Mira. Um, but you know, you walk a line between, look, the direct, my feeling is that the director directs the play, and the director has to work with the actors they want to work with. So my style is not to take an actor or actress and shove anybody down a director's throat. My, you know, I make the suggestion, hopefully they come to it. So this happened over a period of time prior to Anne. I was very <laughs> happy to, I have no uh, so curiosity about that. So I, if I like something, I'll audition for it. So I'll she was kind enough to come in, and, and that's why by the time she came in, I mean, basically she said hello, and David turned to me and just sort of nodded. So it really was true that um, at that point. I didn't just <laughs> say hello, I went through the I know, you went through all the Oh, you produces <laughs> But um, he, he, had, he had made up his mind. So we, we really were blessed. With, and it doesn't was, this is the backstory. Now we do. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes because you've come out of a rich theatrical background yourself. Well, I, I, I didn't want to, I wasn't going to talk about my background, but right. I, what, I wanted to, what I wanted to say is that one of the reasons that we, we were lucky enough to get this extraordinary cast for this play is because of the Roundabout Theatre. And because the theatre, the way it works, the way they've set it up, it allows um, people to do limited runs of plays, you know, six, ten weeks, which is what we're doing here. And we would never be able to get actors like Liam Neeson and Rip Torn 
who have many film commitments and television commitments, there's no way that the chances of getting them to do something in the theatre for six months are, are practically non-existent. So that's the important of a th importance of a theatre like Roundabout, mm -hmm. amongst yeah, yeah. other reasons, is to allow wonderful actors who work in film and television to be able to, to go back and do theatre, which is what we all love to do. Yeah. That's true. I, yeah. I, I appreciate it, and I, and, I, and I think it's, uh, I'm grateful for anything we can get mm -hmm. for any length of time, but it, it is so unhappy making that not enough people can see this production, that it has to close and go on when it does. Is there any thought about bringing it back to get at another time? Is I know it's been extended. <laughs> can you go farther there? Well, uh, there you know, once once it became what it's become in terms of the critical uh, and audience success, I mean, there was everybody in the world was interested in moving it to another venue because Roundabout is a subscription theater. We're committed to the subscription, and on February 28th, it ends, and on March 3rd, the next play begins. Um, but uh, the actors had other commitments. Uh, no, I understand this, that. So but w would there be a possibility that uh, three months, four months from now, it could come back and perhaps another theater if you were doing something? So that the I, don't, I think, personally, I think the spell would have been mm. broken, I you know? Too. It's broken. No. You know? Not, I can't believe that. I wish, <laughs> they, I wish they had taped it for American Playhouse or something on PBS. Yeah. Well, that's not yeah. the same as seeing it live, I have to tell you that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'd like to, because I've admired uh, your work for so many years. Uh, and I realize you're, on, you're a kid, but uh, have, you, have you seen the, in the, in the last few years, uh, could you talk a little bit about the, 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 the shift, if there is indeed, of both opportunities uh, for actors and, uh, you know, working in the theater? Have you seen the kind of shift that's gone on, let's say, in the last 10 or 15 years, uh, both ways of working, opportunities, all of those things? Well, I came to town a few years before that, but uh, <laughs> when I first came to town and I was an understudy in, in Cattle on the Hot Tin Roof, uh, it seemed that there were many more theaters and many more plays, much more opportunity. I don't know what the reasons were. Some people said they were real estate, or, or but uh, it. To me, I love what you're doing at the O'Neill. I've come up there and visited many times. I have many friends that work there. I love what what uh, the support for the theater. But I must say, there's one thing that I'm very critical of of our government, both national, state, and city. Every European. European uh, capital and, and nation has their their opera, their repertory theaters, and they have many of them, and they are supported uh, throughout. So it gives much more opportunity for actors to to. Uh, it is the artists themselves and the actors themselves who now they say that theater shouldn't be subsidized. Well, I think that the artists themselves are the ones that are doing the are subsidizing the theaters by coming in and, and uh, giving their time, and, and it's a reciprocal thing. We love to do it, but gee, uh, it, it's bread for the soul, the theater. And it's something that we owe our children to have a chance to have not only this great theater that puts on uh, theaters both modern and, and those of the past, because like Tasha said, this play, which maybe wasn't even as understood as much as it is by these modern audiences, is is great because it, it speaks to the human condition. It it it, it has w uh, the questions of the <coughs> woman's struggle is right here on the stage, 
and is just as modern as anything that's written today. So all I can say is, gee, more theater, it makes more theater. I don't know how to get it uh, uh, helped more, but uh, I'm making a very lame brain pitch here. For <laughs> well, for I, 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 can, I can only say that I, um, it's in, in light of a commercial for all of us, that um, I do sit on the National Council of the Arts, and I can tell you that uh, this year we're struggling to have a 175 million kept in the appropriations for all of the arts in the United States, and the budget of the uh, French Ministry of Culture is two billion dollars. And I sort of think that says, uh, makes a rather sad comment. Um, your theater, The Roundabout, seems very successful from the point of view of audiences. People seem especially happy to be in that theater. Do you, is, is that right? Is, that, is my intuition right about that or not? Yeah, I mean, we have a huge subscription audience. We have 22,000 subscribers. It's just the physical and I think surroundings. A, yeah, I think, well, I, I think this is, we, we've had a few different um, incarnations in terms of our physical theater. I think this one um, is the nicest because there's something about First of all, it's a very physical, com physically comfortable theater in terms of the seats, which may not sound like a lot, but why should it be agony to physically sit and watch a play? <laughs> Second of all, um, I actually, I, it's intimate. It's a 500-seat theater, so it's very small. It's kind of experience you can't have in a 1,200-seat theater. And third of all, I personally think having the thrust stage brings the actors even closer to the audience, you know, obviously physically, but also part of the audience in a... In a in another way, and I think that really adds to the enjoyment of the play. So, yeah, it's been a very successful move. For and you're more intensely on Broadway than any other theater. You see the life of Broadway outside, and I think that's very thrilling for mm. people to come in, not least because most uh, theaters don't have any lobbies. Because yes, of we the, have this the incredible lobby. Have a big space, people come in, they're Beautiful sitting there. Over Broadway, you can watch it. I also it. think it's that you It's a very thrilling experience. <laughs> Todd, haven't you been merchandising the theater a little bit more aggressively than most theater producers by going after uh, singles and subscriptions? Yes, and we've, we've tried to take an aggressive Which approach, is very important. You know. I mean, my theory, I, I guess my theory is, is, a, is, a, um, is an extension of Rip's comment about the more theater the better, which I certainly agree with, which is that any way you can bring an audience into a play is legitimate if you get them in there, because once they're in, you've got them. Sure. Hopefully, do you know? Anybody, whatever reason somebody came to see Anna Christie, if we had a singles night and they knew they were going to get a party afterwards, which <laughs> is the case with some of our subscriptions, there's no doubt in my mind <laughs> that when they get in the door, they're going to be turned on by that play and turned on by the theater. And I think that's good for the industry. I think that um, we all start a, a bring your grandmother to the theater instead of FAO Schwartz <laughs> and have half price well, for any child that comes Well, I have to tell you that it's funny you mention that because next season we've just. We're just putting in a print now. We're starting a family series for exactly, that, exactly what you said. Our subscriptions, which are already $25 a ticket, mm -hmm. which is basically half price. Um, on top of that, anybody who brings a child, 18 so or older, will get half important. price. That's, that's better than government subsidy, really. Getting mm. the child into the theater. <laughs> I agree. We're about to go to questions, but... My six children and two grandchildren have seen the Half fights or four? Okay. But still, government, you can help a little bit. I agree. As we go to these questions, I'd just like to ask one, but can you tell me just what your background was? Where did you study? In, uh, obviously in England, but I mean... In what, I studied what at um, the Central School of Speech and Drama, which is in, in London and in England. And the best thing that came out of it for me, I didn't think it was a great school. Um, I was struggling to find a way of working. They didn't seem to give you any direction at all. And I stumbled upon 
the works of Stanislavski and suddenly it was like oh my god I, I, I understand this is it and I was so excited I went to the principal of the school and I said well I, I, I've got it now <laughs> it's all in here and he just you know looked at me and said oh you got to be very careful of that stuff you know <laughs> <laughs> and I knew that you know that was you know it was like a dirty word there so he did give me some good things it was terrific in terms of vocal training and um, physical training and I think the best thing I got out of it was what Liam said which is the practice of doing a lot of plays because we did a, a lot of plays but for me it, it, it was it was lacking in in, a, in an approach and I think there are many different methods of working there is no right way but I needed to find my way in and, and my way in was through uh, through reading Stanislavski's books. You're very young to have found your way so fast. Well, I don't, it's a constantly evolving. I don't mean to say that, you know, that. Uh, That's anyway. a pretty good view. There are so many questions <laughs> want to be asked, so we'll go to them now. Would you not say who you are? Liam, uh, hi, my name is Barry Holmes. Uh, this question is from a fellow Irishman who's thrilled with your success to date. Have you found your accent to be somewhat of a disadvantage in general? I know it fits right in with Anna Christie, but... Um, sometimes. It usually depends on my attitude, you know? I mean, I, I know I can change it and... But I, the first time I went out to LA, I, I thought it best to go into a casting session and speak in an American accent, but it just wasn't me, you know? Mm -hmm. um, now, I don't care, honestly. I, I know I can change it, and if a director knows that too, then we're off to a good start, you know? But this is, I, this is how I speak, and I'm proud of my heritage, my roots, and this is who I am. And Sean, Sean Connery once, he, he encapsulated it once, he was, he was asked, uh, he says, you always have your own accent, and he says, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know who I was. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm Maureen Cassidy, this question's for Anne, Mira, and Rip Torn. I've only read the play, I haven't seen it yet, but I will. But <coughs> I found the relationship between Marthy and Chris was very intriguing, and I was wondering for you both personally, did you, did, did um, Chris love Marthy, and did Marthy love Chris? I say, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel I love Chris very much on stage, yes. And he's a good guy off stage, he's a friend. <laughs> he's a chum, a buddy. Hi, my name is Teresa Kelsey. Um, I found myself having a lot of acting questions coming to mind, but most of which managed to be answered throughout the course of the discussion. And I got more and more curious about the designers. Um, I know there's a lot of preparation that goes into an acting role, and I wondered how you go about doing it. Do you read the play? Do you analyze it? Do you most often go with your first instinct, or have you found yourself chucking everything as you see it taking shape and going a whole different direction? And how much of that has to be done beforehand? And What's your system? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I was hoping Mark was going to answer that. <laughs> um, all of the above, yes. I think it's very similar to... Uh, I don't know what it's like. To, I actually was a terrible actor, so uh, I... Uh, partly, I guess, maybe because I was a designer. But uh, <coughs> I find it must be similar to, to acting in that uh, same sort of preparation. I find that the oddest things... Uh, have an effect on how I feel.
feel or what comes out of me or what the director brings out of me. I mean, um, for example, the way David um, s smokes and the colors that he wears <laughs> and the way he paces around a room affect the way I think uh, about the movement of the play because I see he embodies, for a moment, he embodies the play in front of me. So I'm absorbing that as, as we're talking about something quite technical, something else quite emotional comes in. Also, hearing who's going to be in the play and hearing a director talk about casting, sometimes just the sort of the image of that person sort of leaps into the scenery, or not. I mean, sometimes when the people are, in this case, so vivid, you don't really need the scenery to do their work. So you back off and go another direction. I actually, I must so say, I really don't know how you design scenery. I go into my studio in the morning and I look down at this picture and I say, who did this? I, d I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so don't know what I My name is Francine Ringgold Johnson. I'm from Tulsa, Oklahoma. And my question is for Natasha. The very convincing Minnesota accent you use, that broad accent, did that help you make the character as many-dimensional as it is, or was it a hindrance? Did you have to fight it? Um, no, I, I, didn't, I didn't find it a hindrance. I, I worked with a great coach called Tim Monick, who um, helped me work on it. And I have to get to the point where I can forget about it, because if I was thinking about getting the accent right, then I wouldn't be playing the part. So I, I worked on that hard early on, and occasionally needed little reminders or prods about certain sounds, but I, I found it helpful because it's where she's from. I don't find it a hindrance. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, I'm Thea, and this is also addressed to Natasha. Uh, as an acting student, I'm very curious if you want to answer it, how you personally prepare yourself before going on stage. Who before going on stage? <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, well, I go through a bit of a long route. I'm, I think we are all similar in the sense that uh, you get into a routine in the theatre that you hate to change. Everything has to happen. Um, how I prepare is I try and I warm up my voice. I sing um, to a tape of like Annie Lennox, or I, s no, I walk I mean, about the stage and, and sing. Mm -hmm. And how I get my head into it before I go on stage. Yeah, just and especially Anna Christie. Anna Christie, Anna I. I read, I go back and look at bits of the text mm -hmm. that I and, and f try and find new things. And what I try and do before I go on stage is I try and feel how heavy those bags are. I try and feel what it's like to have not been up, to have been up all night, to the feel the nerves of seeing my father for the first time and all, all those kind of things. I try and, that's how I try and do it, I guess. Thank you. It's very hard for the designers, I have to tell you, because uh, in terms of theater manners, you never know whether someone's preparing in a way that you can speak to them in the last half hour, <laughs> or whether you're supposed to pretend that they're not there. And so I, I tell myself not to speak to an actor for the last half hour, and sometimes I think, oh, do they think I'm rude for not saying hello? But if I said hello and I ruined all their preparations, <laughs> they have to start over. I'm so impressed with Rip Torn carrying his book around him too that he is still finding other things to read and other things to read. And, and each night, as Liam says about listening, there there are things that that uh, that Liam says, particularly listening to to his daughter Anna mm -hmm. Natasha. I, I 
the great thing about being in this production is see everybody's trying to get a ticket and I got one of the best tickets in town <laughs> right there on the stage and, and that's very inspiring but I do try to relax I do warm up my voice I go try to go over the entire play very lightly and, and, and familiarize and make sure that I've got everything because you can start drifting if you don't check your text you can drift into other patterns or sometimes you can't understand why you're you don't feel right about a passage, and then you look and you find you're not saying the How right words. How much does it change from night to night? Say what? How much does it change from night to night? How much do you do you feel? We think we're getting better. Okay. Ah, well said. It so does change a lot. Everybody in the audience feels that way too. Everyone that's seen it. Hi, my name is Howell Mayer. Uh, my question is directed to Tasha. Um, which role did you find more demanding, the role of Anna or the uh, part of Patty Hearst in the film? Oh, well, um, I don't know. I, I'm not very good at, at, at doing comparisons between roles because film and theatre are very different. And also, I do, all I can say is that I try and bring everything I've got to every part that I play. And so my commitment is always 100%. So I can't really think in terms of what's, what's more demanding. But, um, so I'm sorry that I can't really answer that. Hi, uh, Claudia Cooper's questions for Liam. Uh, in regards to the fact that obviously being so busy with your film acting that you haven't, I'd read that you hadn't uh, done a play, excuse me, since for eight years now, mm -hmm. this is your first play. So I was just curious if you right away said yes, I heard Natasha had approached you. Was it something you really thought about? Um, and do you plan to do any more? And any a, lot of, a lot of thought, obviously, because there is the commitment to that period of time. And Natasha called me about, a, I guess, a year before, 11 months, 10 months maybe, before we had to sign on the line, you know, and uh, it, it's, yeah, and you go through all that, I mean, I went through all these, this feeling really vulnerable and thinking, shit, can you do it again, and you read the play and think, well, God, it is kind of antiquated to read it, you know, <coughs> and, uh, but the closer we got, to it, I, I realized, especially when I found out Rip was in it too, I, there's certain times in your life you have to be at a certain place in a certain time and it was here to do this play with this company and in this theater and I felt it from the first read through on, it was just right and all those stupid thoughts I had about shit, how do you learn lines, I've forgotten how to do that, it just, <laughs> it just evolved, you know? it just came, you know. And, I'm not saying it's like riding a bicycle and you, you know, theater's not like that, but there are certain, there's a Will certain you come back again? techniques. When I'd love to, yeah. Okay. Natasha and I are going to do Anthony and Cleopatra in five years' time. <laughs> Hi, I'm David Pryor. I have a question for Natasha. Um, I've read that you work more from the heart and less from the head. Can you speak to that in terms of either your work on this role? or in your selection of future material? Um, uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I think that my taste does not, as, as my taste in movies and plays and literature tends to run towards things that I've, can, to people I can feel something for, rather than clever, dry, intellectual things. That, so, so it is just a sort of, if you like, it's a, it's a personal gut reaction. Do I feel for these people? And, or this one particular person and do I care about their story and do I want to be them and go on this journey and um, 
that's what that's what it is it's 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 a sort of it's a sort of empathy with with someone and their condition um, that attracts me rather than you know very you know clever I stuff must interrupt <laughs> once more I, I, I'm, I'm a very fortunate woman who had an organization the American Theatre Wing they can call upon the people that we do and that are here today but I'm also have to be very rude and, and interrupt them each time there is so much to be said but our time is up and so we are at the Graduate Center to the City University of New York and the American Theatre Wings working in the seminars have just been concluded in a wonderful, wonderful production of Roundabouts Anna Christie. Thank you all for being here.